Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Bitcoin is taking another step toward mainstream of adoption, as customers of some of the biggest U.S. banks will soon be able to buy, hold, and sell Bitcoin through their existing accounts. This capability is also going to be offered to even smaller financial institutions. According to research by Cornerstone Advisors, 60% of crypto owners would use their bank to invest in cryptocurrencies. Even though interest from traditional banking firms is still rather low, is there an opportunity that's being missed at a time when money and account are flowing into fintech firms globally? We are fortunate to have Patrick Sells, head of banking solutions at NYDIG, a leading technology and financial services firm dedicated to Bitcoin. Sells discusses the opportunities and challenges of traditional banks offering integrated Bitcoin solutions. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Over the past several weeks, it's been announced that Bitcoin purchases will now be directly available to millions of consumers from more than 1,000 U.S. banks and credit unions as a result of partnerships between your firm, NCR, Fiserv, and FIS. These agreements will enable banks and credit unions of all sizes to offer crypto trading services to their clients through mobile payment applications. The partnerships will also make it easy for traditional financial institutions to handle crypto transactions without having to deal with a regulatory requirement of holding cryptocurrencies for clients by using your crypto custody services. First of all, Patrick, can you tell us a little bit more about NYDIG as well as your role at the company? Sure. And it's great to be on with you this morning, Jim. A little bit about NYDIG. We are a kind of leading Bitcoin platform company. And what we mean by that is we're really the only truly vertically integrated technology stack in the world of Bitcoin. And that allows us to really work with many across the industry from Bitcoin miners to asset managers, hedge funds, ultra high net worth individuals, banks, credit unions and fintechs that are all taking advantage of, you know, the entirety of our technology stack or mo certain modules of it. And so kind of think about us as the kind of Bitcoin platform. My role at NYDIG is I run what we call our bank solutions business. Um, and so that means really working to think about what's our go-to-market strategy, what's the product, what are the partnerships, how do we build and kind of run that business, if you will. And I came to NYDIG and part of what informed my role here was actually working at a bank called Quantic, which is a community bank headquartered in New York, where NYDIG was a partner of uh, Quantic for about a year. And so in many ways, you know, I've been working with the NYDIG team for now almost two years around, you know, this idea of Bitcoin and banking and how do you actually make that possible? Well, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, the Bitcoin marketplace has not only been very active, but it's becoming increasingly mainstream beyond the most wealthy and those who day trade crypto. You know, this is a really kind of a nebulous area and an area that most retail bankers may not understand as much. They may have their preconceived notions, myself included, around what's going on in the crypto market. So overall, why should traditional financial institutions offer the capabilities that NYDIG offers? Sure. I think that's a good question and one that I've spent uh, at this point probably over a thousand hours talking to bankers around the country about. And I think it's important to delineate um, that Bitcoin is really different than other digital assets or cryptocurrencies. 
and that's very much how we see it and the role that Bitcoin will play in the financial future. But also today, you know, Bitcoin was created to be an open source monetary network. It is an asset, it's property. And so when you think about Bitcoin in that light and you think about, let's say, take America and banks, American banks have always played kind of the role of safekeeper and gateway to asset ownership. You know, the idea of the American dream, which is really about allowing someone to purchase an asset, is about home ownership. And banks have been the, the primary vehicle through which that was made possible for America. And so when you think about that, you realize the, the role of banks and asset ownership are intertwined. And if you now think about Bitcoin as kind of a 21st century asset, it makes a lot of sense that banks would say, hey, we can provide access to this asset and there's ways we can leverage it for our customers. And so I think kind of philosophically, that's that's de definitely something that's resonated with many bankers. I think, you know, maybe a different lens on that is we as Americans have, you know, such a blessing in our lives and that we have the financial system that we do and it's safe and sound and U.S. banks have developed that reputation. They know how to do things in a safe and sound way and they're obviously held to very high standards with their regulators. And so, you know, as banks begin to realize that not just a few, but oftentimes many customers own Bitcoin or want to, then there kind of becomes this imperative to say, is what they're doing agnostic to my beliefs about it, this, the safest and soundest way for them possible to manage that financial asset? And if not, or if I feel like I can offer a better way of doing that, then I want to. And that's in the best interest of my customer. And so you can kind of, you know, take anything away from Bitcoin and just think about like fundamentally, how can I do serve my customer better? And then I think probably the third lens on it would be, you know, that many bankers realize that like, Bitcoin is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And so I think watching what happened over the last decade or two in the industry as fintech came to be, many banks, especially community banks and credit unions, were a bit farther behind that and seeing what's happening now and saying, hey, here's an opportunity for banks not just to you kind of get even, if you will, or catch up, but really leapfrog and lead the industry is exciting for many banks. And so I think, you know, whether it's philosophical, it's a view towards the customer or there's a kind of business intent behind it, you know, between those three and a combination of those three. That's why I think banks have paid attention to it and why bankers should be paying attention to what's happening. So for organizations that work with NIDIG, do they have the ability then to do they actually does the financial institution hold the crypto? Are they able to trade it on their platform? What actually does this capability give a financial institution? And to another level, you know, when you're talking to financial institutions and most financial institutions we talk about in the show a lot is that they're really tend to avoid risk as opposed to manage risk. How do they deal with the, the fact that a consumer, one of their customers or members could end up in a situation that, you know, they're, they're rich one day, they're poor the next? How do they deal with all those items? Sure. So, you know, one one small comment and I'll go to some of the bigger comments there are the thoughts. But I think the first thing about what are banks doing when they you know take advantage of the NIDIG platform, we, we have a, a really an entire suite of products. I think at this point there's 15 or 16 different kind of products with Bitcoin, if you will. I think that the, the foundational or building block is allowing what we talk about is our Bitcoin trading platform. So customers can log into their bank's mobile app 
and they can buy, sell, and hold Bitcoin directly with NYDIG in that way. Um, and that, that's really the starting point. But then I think what for me gets really exciting about the role banks can play in terms of the Bitcoin story is actually how much easier and novel ways they can bring it to consumers. And so take, for example, a Bitcoin rewards card. This is something that could be a credit card or a debit card. And instead of getting points back or cash back, I could get Bitcoin. And so for someone who's a Bitcoiner, that's obviously a very attractive card. But for someone who has never owned Bitcoin before, maybe been hesitant to invest their money, now all of a sudden you, banks can create kind of a really, really low friction, safe, easy way to begin to get exposure to the asset class. And so there's examples of products like that. One of the things that we're working also with many banks around the country now is related to lending. You know, how you being able to borrow dollars against Bitcoin like you could property or other assets that you have. And, you know, that's a very exciting, very exciting product and something many banks are interested in because it also helps them generate incremental interest income, which is important as NIMS have compressed around the industry. In terms of kind of your second question around like, you know, what are banks going to do when, you know, given the volatility, I think consumers by and large all recognize that Bitcoin and crypto is a volatile asset and inherent with that is, is risk. But I think what banks can do is put in place the safety and soundness framework and controls that they use with all other technology they offer their consumer, right? So when a bank wants to roll out, say, Zelle or peer-to-peer payments for the first time, most of the time, if not all the time, they're going to put limits on how much money you can send in an individual transaction or in a given day. And the NIDIG platform allows for those types of controls as well. So they can limit how much available cash someone can use to buy Bitcoin or how many transactions that they can. And so you can't obviously get rid of the volatility, but banks can put safety and soundness measures in place. Again, that kind of goes back to one of my first points around, you know, the role banks can can play in helping provide the best product for the consumer, the best access for the consumer. And so I think, you know, it's thinking through things like that that helps banks and their customers feel comfortable and safe with getting access to Bitcoin in a variety of ways, whether rewards card or, you know, just uh, being able to invest in it directly. So, Patrick, you know, from a financial institution basis, they really don't have any balance sheet impact, but they do create some fee opportunities, don't they? Yeah. So in the nighting model, and I think key to the kind of traction we've had today is NYDIG can come in as the qualified custodian or the Bitcoin custodian for the end user, which means that this isn't even something that the bank has to offer. You know, if you're a nationally chartered bank, the OCC put out an interpretive letter last year saying they can act as a custodian and some states like Texas have issued similar things. But I don't think by and large, we'll see the market really embrace that just yet because there's still too much regulatory uncertainty around what that needs to look like. But what a bank can do is use its finder's power to bring in someone like NYDIG, much like the way banks could bring in an independent RIA or a broker dealer to their customers. And so they can make NYDIG available as that custodian. And that means that the Bitcoin is never touching the bank's balance sheet as their customers invest in it. But it lets them retain that customer. Many banks have seen kind of customer flight to you know other uh, fintech or crypto exchanges. So it lets them you know offer a new product or service, retain and attract customers. But then you're hitting on Jim one of the key points, which is related to the business opportunity here. 
And so for banks, by this becomes a meaningful um, non-interest income generator for them. And that's really exciting for me as an only recently former banker. You know, one of the things I observed at my bank was every time we rolled out new technology, it was a cost center. And every time my customers used it, I just spend more money, right? And now when you look at something like Bitcoin, banks can roll out something new and actually make money. So when Bitcoin's bought and sold, there are transaction fees. I kind of analogize that to interchange revenue, you know, from a card standpoint. And the retail average today is about 2.3 to 2.5% every time Bitcoin's bought or sold. And so when we look at the market, we see that that's about a $25 billion annual fee stream um, that's largely today consolidated with a few players. But banks are going to be able to participate in those economics. And that's important um, as NII has been kind of watered down or reduced over the last decade for various reasons. And right now in the interest rate environment we're living in with such tight NIMS, the opportunity for meaningful non-interest income is very attractive. And so in the NIDIG model, we let our bank partners determine what they want those transaction fees to be. They could be at you know market, they could be above or below that. And then they get to retain those as the non-interest income uh, for the bank. You know, that's that's interesting. You know, there's been a lot of increase in interest from the largest financial institutions in providing Bitcoin services to different segments of their clients at the same time that PayPal, Square and other digital payment firms have announced major Bitcoin initiatives. Are legacy banks and credit unions already in a game of catch up and, and taken to a step further? Are the, are the regulators also playing a game of catch up right now in the whole Bitcoin marketplace? It's a good comment. I, I think in one sense, yes, you know, banks are behind um, in the kind of cryptocurrency because we see what's happening with, you know, as you mentioned, PayPal or Square or Coinbase. And you definitely we've seen this year the largest financial institutions spend a lot of energy and resources and begin to offer some type of product. But I think I kind of am able to see the market in a unique position as to what's happening at the community bank and credit union space, if you will. And just very excited about actually, I think they're going to not play catch up, but they're really going to leapfrog and end up leading the industry here because there's so many powerful products and ways that Bitcoin can be incorporated into banking um, that is for the benefit of both the consumer and the bank. And so I think while in this moment in time, in many ways, it could feel like the industry is behind. I think all the work that's been happening behind the scenes will catapult retail banking to the forefront of the industry. And that's something that I know I'm personally very excited about. And I, so I think, you know, it, it's coming and it will actually be a, a massive change into the way in which Bitcoin can be incorporated into everyone's lives. Speaking of integrating within everyone's lives, you know, there's been some discussion in the marketplace around offering Bitcoin capabilities through ATMs, expanding the way that can be used. You mentioned already the possibility of offering uh, Bitcoin as part of a financial reward program on credit cards or debit cards or cash back. You know, how else do you see Bitcoin integrating what, what I'll call the, the natural fabric of retail banking? Sure. So here's an example of a product that we're working on that I'm super excited about. Today, Bitcoin does, I think the market cap is probably around $800 billion or so. And that's a lot of value. Um, and in a typical fiat, you know, kind of credit decision, whether that's for a home loan, a car loan, a credit card, whatever, you know, banks underwrite someone's income and their net worth and their assets. 
And today, all of that value in Bitcoin is really left out because there's no way to do that. Right. If you have Bitcoin at Coinbase, how can I make a credit decision? Because I have no clue what you what you can do with that Bitcoin. And in the NIDIG model and how we partner with banks, all of a sudden Bitcoin becomes an asset that can be factored into a credit decision. And that could, will allow banks to offer you know, lower interest rates to consumers, which will make them more competitive than I think many of the kind of alt lenders, if you will. And again, begin to unlock even more of the power of Bitcoin. And so like a great example of that, I actually have a friend in Austin, Texas, who, you know, has a good job, but you know, not a great job per se. And his credit score isn't spectacular, but he has many millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. But when he goes to get a car loan, he's usually he was paying the highest interest rate possible because there's no way of underwriting his true net worth. And now all of a sudden he can bring that to one of his, you know, to his local bank and will be able to take into account that he has millions of dollars of Bitcoin and offer him a far lower interest rate. And so I think, you know, kind of Bitcoin as property or as an asset is an example of how it will be integrated into, you know, retail banking and, and consumers lives. And again, equip and arm the banks with a far more powerful and beneficial offering to consumers. So, Patrick, when PayPal announced that they were going to support cryptocurrencies, the announcement was made in conjunction with the discussion around PayPal wanting to create a super app. Their logic was that they wanted their customers to spend as much time as possible on the PayPal app to create higher levels of engagement and loyalty. Is this one of the foundational reasons why a traditional bank would want to consider expanding their services into Bitcoin trading? In other words, you know, as you mentioned earlier in our, our discussion, the fact that consumers are continually fragmenting their relationships, and this will help get them more back onto the same app that they want to keep them on from a retail banking perspective? Look, I think we all saw what happened with PayPal and just the tremendous kind of product market fit that they experienced. I think one of the stats that has stood out to me the most is PayPal reported 95% year-over-year growth in new accounts last year. And that's pretty startling when you think about an incumbent and an incumbent of that size experiencing that type of new user growth, forgetting about the app engagement to your point that offering Bitcoin has brought. I think PayPal's reported that the Bitcoin holder is multiples more engaged in the app than a non-Bitcoin holder. And really what that underlies is something that we saw in our research, which is 71% of big people who own Bitcoin today will, would switch banks for one that offered access to Bitcoin. In other words, consumers will be making a decision about their financial institution of tomorrow based on access to Bitcoin today. And so taking kind of and we see that playing out in paypal now i think paypal if you think about their business and what we know about them and their desire to build that super app makes a lot of sense in terms of why they would want to offer access to bitcoin because of how much retail demand there is but i think what's powerful about the banks is the intent behind the decision is much deeper than just hey we want to create more engagement that's something that I think many of our bank partners look at as like a cherry on top. That's not driving this decision. What's driving it is the recognition that they can offer a far safer and better access to this product, unique access to this product and unlock Bitcoin in a way that enriches the consumer's lives that they serve. And so that desire to say, hey, like, let's not just roll out access being buy, sell, hold, let's really begin to think about how we bring Bitcoin into the banking system in a myriad of ways that in doing so, we can create 
the most powerful platform of fiat and Bitcoin. And that's for the in the best interest of our customers. And so I think that's part of why, again, we'll see actually much more innovation happening out of the banking sector, because this isn't just about driving engagement. That's a nice to have. There's a much deeper, more meaningful kind of reason behind what's driving these banks' decisions. It's a very dynamic marketplace right now, and especially in the crypto area. And, and as you mentioned, the number of people that hold crypto right now is continuously increasing. It's getting broader and broader. Yet overall, the number of financial institutions offering the services that you provide is still very thin. You know, two things. Number one, about what, what percentage of organizations out there are currently offering these kind of services, but more importantly, when you're out there trying to sell this concept of financial institutions, what's the biggest challenge you hear from retail banks? Yeah, so I, I think for any bank, regardless of what you're doing, whenever you're thinking about offering something new or doing something new, you know, you have to think about what is that safety and soundness framework that's required for this. And then B, how will I make the, how does how will I make the technology possible? How will I make that you know kind of feature or access easy? And that's those are kind of two big headwinds in the industry is you know limited ability to modify your technology or your front end and the need to create safety and soundness framework for something that's new. And so you know what we hear from our banks is consistent with those two themes generally, which is that is where their concern is. And I think if you now look at like some of the news, as you mentioned, that came out from NIDIG, we've really partnered with the top, you know, the major core providers and digital banking providers to make that technology side really easy. So there isn't like a one-off integration you have to do. It's really a flip of the switch, so to speak. And then I think, you know, on the compliance side, that's still probably the most prominent concern that we hear come up. But I think one of the things that, you know, I love about banking is this opportunity to say, look, there's perceived risk and there's real risk. And what banks need to do is work through that spectrum and bring something from perceived perception to reality. And I think part of our role as NIDIG is to help them do that. And so one of the things we've done uniquely is build a model compliance package that helps get you 80% of the way there for what you would need for MIS reporting or you know notice to your regulators or the disclosures and tests that are needed. And so the the concern that if there are you know, that exists or related to the compliance side, but we're able to I think help many banks work through that. And Jim, as you know, and your those listening, the industry likes to move in a herd, right? Very few want to be on the, the bleeding edge, but there's a lot of comfort in being in a cohort of banks moving. And really, NIDIG's kind of tripped that herd, so to speak, if you will. And so that also gives banks a lot of comfort in terms of being willing to offer this. Um, and so I think you're right. In this moment in time, there's not as many institutions live with a product. I think if we were back on this show in 90 days or 180 days, it would be a very different conversation. And, you know, Despite, I think this is probably going to go down as one of the fastest chapters of innovation in U.S. banking history. It's still banking and that things need to go slow for a reason because they need to be done in the right way. And a lot of work's been done this year to make this all happen. And so I think we're really kind of at the dawn of beginning to see many, many, many institutions roll out, you know, access to Bitcoin in a variety of ways. So our financial institutions 
um, viewing crypto and, and the Bitcoin marketplace as being something that is going to be like mainstream product, like a checking savings or an investment account, or just going to be a segmented relationship where really it's offered through maybe their small business group or their investment services group or through their top tier offerings? Yeah, so I think Bitcoin will ultimately be much more mainstream. I think it already is mainstream. We see that about one out of five Americans own Bitcoin. And so when we talk to our banks, and again, here I delineate Bitcoin between really others. I think there's a very big difference in terms of the desire and understanding of it. But I think what's been very fun and rewarding for me this year as we've gone through the, this journey with our bank and our bank partners and really focused on education, you know, beginning to see everyone realizing like how powerful Bitcoin can be from a financial inclusion standpoint, from a wealth creation and preservation standpoint. And I think the more that the banking industry really begins to understand that, the more excited they become about the product and the more they want to make it widely accessible. And so I believe that, you know, our bank partners consistently with us, you know, will see that the world will increasingly become Bitcoin as mainstream as something like a checking account, that every American ends up having access to Bitcoin and owns Bitcoin. It will take some time to get there. Um, but that's also very consistent with kind of how networks work. And Bitcoin is just a network, much like Airbnb, right? When Airbnb started, it took a few people to say, yes, that sounds good. And now you look at it today, Airbnb has more listings than the top seven hotel companies combined, right? It's become, it's, it's everywhere. And I think we'll see a very similar thing happen with Bitcoin and banks will play a key role in catalyzing that type of transformation. Oh, it's interesting because you, you mentioned about how quickly it can come up to speed. You know, we, we introduced PPP loans in a weekend. The product did not exist on a Thursday. It was out there in the marketplace on a Monday because government said, we're going to offer these. And so the ability to develop new products at scale quickly, the financial institutions, after never really needed to do this, figured out how to do this last year. So the capability is there. On the other hand, Offering a loan that is a small business loan is something financial institutions were used to, and you didn't really have to educate their employees on it. How are you seeing traditional organizations educating their staff to be familiar enough around the Bitcoin offering to be able to offer it or at least answer questions from customers? The PPP was obviously such a great example of the industry at large, all you know, kind of unifying and aligning to make that possible. And it speaks to the power when we as an industry do that. And I think we're seeing a very similar thing happen with Bitcoin in the sense of kind of unification. And whether, you know, across all the our, our partners and banks that we're working with, that's helping actually accelerate this, right? And it's a good, I think, reminder for us generally as an industry that when we choose to collaborate, we can bring innovation much faster to all of our customers. And that's good for, you know, our banks and it's good for the U.S. financial system. So whether it's PPP or Bitcoin or RPA or whatever the next thing is, is just a good reminder, I think, a good lesson for all of us in the industry. In terms of, you know, where we go from here with it, I think, you know, we'll see that um, or kind of the education side is that, you know, consistent with, you know, opportunities to talk with people like yourself. We've also worked with many of the trade associations at a national and state level to do education events. 
Um, we provide educational content for our banks and also for them to provide to their end users. And so a lot of it really starts with education and helping people begin that journey for those that don't understand Bitcoin. And then I think one of the other things that's been very helpful for kind of what's happening this year is NIDIG does provide a, a call center that's there to support the bank partners from questions like what's a Satoshi that their customers may call and ask them to a Bitcoin transaction. We won't probably always need that, but we see it as something key we can do in the industry day one. And so really from an education standpoint, it's how do we how do we help do that and taking advantage of relationships like the ABA and the ICBA and many of the state associations to continually drive education and awareness. You know, it's interesting on this podcast, an ongoing basis, people that listen, regular listeners realize that I, I talk about the, the need to embrace change. The, the reason why legacy leadership really has to understand that things are changing and that this change is happening faster than ever before and it won't ever happen this slowly again. And I think this is a great example in the marketplace of something that is at the, the tipping point right now of becoming very commonplace, but also another area of financial services that we could lose because of missing opportunities, because of the slowness of reaction. We're starting to see all the major competitors, all the, the technology companies and many of the fintech firms offering these kind of services. And it's gonna really be a, a challenge for traditional financial institutions to say, are we willing to take this step? So a step that right now is a great opportunity to offer a broad array of services and really test their chops on the ability to innovate at scale quickly. Um, Patrick, I really appreciate you being on the show today. I think it's a very interesting concept. But as you said, you know, maybe we have to get together 180 days from now and say, uh, maybe it's going to be an I told you so. Maybe it's going to go slower than we thought it would be. But the reality is the marketplace is not going to go slow. So our ability to catch up, our ability to keep up is really going to be determined on an individual institution basis. And it is something that is going to be part of the financial fabric that is offered to retail banks and retail banking customers. It's just a matter of whether or not financial institutions are going to play in the game. Yeah. Thank you again, Patrick. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jim. It's been great to be on. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, rated a top five banking podcast. I generally appreciate the support you've provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoyed what we were doing, please be sure to follow Banking Transformed in your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take a little time to show some love in the form of a review. It really means a world to the whole team and it helps us move up the rankings and get great speakers going forward. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing on digital transformation and the future of banking for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember that the hallmark of successful people is they always stretch to learn new things. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain -brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.